Welcome to The Theater Project. Today, The Theater Project is thinking about writing for the stage versus the screen. New Jersey native Bill Meshi Jr. is an author of fiction and nonfiction, as well as a screenwriter and playwright. He talks with Mark Spina about the differences in approach when writing for the stage versus the screen. Bill's first novel, The Advocate, won in the novel writing category of the America's Best Competition, and was followed by two equally acclaimed sequels, Officer of the Court and The Defender, as well as the nonfiction works Peckinpah's Women, a reprisal of the portrayal of women in the period westerns of Sam Peckinpah, and Artists on the Art of Survival, Observations on Frustration, Perspiration, and Inspiration for the Young Artist. His screenwriting credits include Road Ends, starring Dennis Hopper and Marielle Hemingway, an uncredited work on Brian De Palma's political thriller, Blowout. His plays include a Jersey Cantata, which was named one of the best new plays to debut in New Jersey in the 97-98 season, and will be revived this summer by the Theater Project in Maplewood. We hope you enjoy. Good morning, Mr. Meishi. Good morning, Mr. Spina. Good to see you as always. So, Bill, you have written for the stage, for screen, you've done novels, and now I know you are also doing a lot of critical essays about film. But let's stick to stage and screen today. Do you want to get us started with how you approach the two differently, if you do at all? There's a, a substantial difference in the dynamic. And I mean, to step back and take the, the 10,000 foot view, there's a number of playwrights who've made a successful jump to screenwriting. Neil Simon, Patty Chayefsky started in theater uh, and is the only screenwriter to win three Academy Awards. Aaron Sorkin. I don't know if he ever, did he ever write another stage piece after uh, A Few Good Men? We'll, we'll look it up. <laughs> but anyway, um, so a number of playwrights have been able to make that jump. You don't hear about screenwriters making the jump to stage and making the same kind of splash. And I think that says something about how different the dynamics of the two are. Now, I don't have much of a theater. I really don't have a theater background at all. My education in theater was dating a couple of women who were theater majors. And I kind of stumbled into it. So my my approach isn't particularly intellectual. A story comes to me and I says that's a screen story. That's a stage story. That's a story for the page. So there's something in my approach that's rather instinctive about it and not particularly well thought out. Well, could we pick that apart for a minute? So do you have any sense at all about what 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 pushes you to place a story on stage as opposed to on film? What about the story is it that, that does that? Is it the location? Is it the character? One of the things that I think I do well for the stage is the same thing that gets me into trouble when I write for the screen. And that's that I love dialogue. And when you write for the screen, uh, when we're in a development process, the thing that you're getting constantly is you got to trim this back. You got to trim this back. You got to trim this back. Scenes are too long. Scenes are too talky. That's the essence of theater. I mean, the heart of theater is that all you really have at the end of the day to tell your story, to establish your characters, is a bunch of people on the stage talking to each other. The challenge in writing for the stage is that going in, you know you are writing for a physically limited universe. 
You know you have to keep the cast numbers down. You know you want to keep the locations down. There are certain physical limitations that affect the aesthetics. And I think that's why playwrights are better at making the transition to film because for them, it's got to be like taking the handcuffs off. <laughs> Great. I want them to have a, take a walk around the block. It's not a big deal. I want to have a delivery guy show up with McDonald's at the door. Not a big deal. You add that head to the cast at a theater, particularly since most professional theaters in the United States are fairly small, working on tight budgets. They're mostly nonprofit. You add the delivery guy, and you might be adding a budget buster. There's always a stage manager. Yeah, you add a location, and it's a big headache. So the playwright gets to work in this expanded universe when he writes for film. People who've only ever written for film, trying to get them to write for that more precise medium of the stage, I don't think many of them can do it. Scenes in film generally are, compared to the stage, rather short. You get up to around three to five pages. The development guy is looking at you. Does it really have to be this long? And you throw that up against something like one of my favorite plays, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's three hours long. Each act is an hour long. And each act is a single scene all in one location. If that had been an original screenplay, I think somebody at the production company or the studio probably would have had a stroke. And even then, when they did the film adaptation, there's two scenes that they moved to other locations because you could tell somebody was thinking, we got to get some air in this. One thing I've noticed is that more plays are being written in cinema style. The two, the two media are certainly influencing each other. And audiences are being trained by movies and television to have different expectations. So many playwrights are going to more locations but then it means it has to be done more abstractly. And there's the conflict because many audiences coming from film and television, the abstract is new to them. And sometimes it is a culture shock. Have you encountered that? Since I've mostly been working in small theaters, almost all of my stuff has been presented in kind of an abstract. And, you know, minimum sets, sometimes really no set at all, except a couple of chairs and tables. It hasn't been an issue that I've noticed. I think because most people, not all, and keep in mind, everything I say, there are notable exceptions to. But I think generally, a lot of people who go to the theater kind of sort of know what to expect. Where I really see what you're talking about is uh, we do this young playwrights competition. And what I see in a lot of that material is... The people, the young people who are writing for this, they're not trying to write for the stage. They can't write a movie because they can't get into that. So they're trying to jam a movie or a TV show onto the stage. And you see that with these short scenes, multiple locations, too many characters, you know, for, for short plays. Um, I was once a judge for the, I think it's the Mid-Atlantic Arts Council, something like that. It was a lot of years ago. So these were not necessarily young playwrights that were uh, submitting work for grants. But even there, I noticed this is, there's not really a love of theater. There's a, I can't get into the movies. I'm going to shoehorn a movie onto the stage. And it's a shame because even though I'm basically a film guy, and as I said, I, I don't really have a theater background. I didn't study theater. Um, 
over time and through experience, I've developed a real appreciation for what theater can do that film and even the page can't. There's a, a great electric dynamic to live performance, especially in a small house. I think it's even more pronounced in a small house than it is in a larger house. There's an intimacy to that. And if you write a scene that either moves people or makes them laugh, the fact that those are real people, not that far away from them, creates a connection that you don't have in film or TV. I'm, I'm not saying you can't make people cry with a good movie. God knows I've cried through enough of them. I, I cry through ASPCA commercials, so it's a low bar. But that intimate, personal, human-to-human connection is unrepeatable in other medium. And the other thing is uh, adding to that, or fueling that, I should say, are the fact that you do get to write these long scenes with just people dealing with other people on the stage. There's not a hustle to it. The audience gets time to get involved in these relationships that they see on the stage. Even if it's something that's, uh, even if you look at like the odd couple, Okay, and I think Neil Simon gets short, you are used to get short shrift too often from people saying it's not serious theater, it's not serious theater. It's very well-crafted theater. And something like The Odd Couple, you buy into those two guys and you get involved in that relationship, which is what makes it so funny is because you share, depending on if you're a neat freak or a slob, <laughs> you share the frustration of each of them. And... In an original screenplay, I'm not talking about film adaptations of stage plays, but in an original, you can get there, but it's a much different dynamic to get there. What's interesting, Neil Simon started out in television, went on to... Live, live television. Live television. So yeah, had that element of theater, went on to become a stage success into film, and I think circled back to theater later in life. So he's, he made, it, made a huge circuit there. So my processes are, are very different. First of all, most of the screenwriting I've done has been for hire. And that tends to be uh, the general case in, in screenwriting in the movies. You very often are brought in and commissioned, so to speak, to do a project. It's much more structure. The, the structure is much more disciplined in film. If you follow the quote unquote rules your act turns have to happen much more quickly. I'm sorry, say that again? Your, your which has to happen more quickly? The, the, the plot turns, the act turns. Act turns, I got it. I was thinking, I thought you said actors have to happen more quickly. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and this is a digression from where I was going, but since you mentioned the actors, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about that intimate connection between the audience and, and uh, the performance, Somebody who acts on the stage has to be on all the time. They are that character for the 90 minutes, the two hours, whatever it is. They have to be. That's how theater works. A film performance, and not to take anything away from film actors, but a film performance is very often constructed in the editing room. Because you'll do, you know, six takes of how I say hello to you. And maybe it's because I did all six of them differently or the camera angles on them are all different. And then you go into the editing room and decide, well, which is the best one? 
and you're putting a scene together out of all these little bits and it looks cohesive to us if it's done well. Um, but the actor doesn't have to be on all the time. And also the camera gives the actor a lot, you know, you can raise an eyebrow and you've done something pivotal. Uh And that takes a great load off the screenwriter. A screenplay tends to be fairly skeletal and it's not an author's work. The screenwriter does not have final say, not even close. Even if it is an original screenplay, once it's brought into development and even into production, everybody else gets a vote except the writer. And the writer's job is now to make everybody happy. You have, I think it was, um, I can't remember the, the screenwriter, but he was talking about the abuses that are always heaped on the screenwriter. And he says, you'll have actors telling you what they think the actor you create, the character you created, what they think that character would do. And you're going to listen to them because they get a bigger paycheck than you do. You contrast that with theater where the tradition is the, the, the playwright's word is it. It's carved in granite, um, which is the other thing I like about writing for the stage. I don't have to worry about anybody messing with it. <laughs> well, it is true, I think, that those of us who love language tend to gravitate towards theater. It's, it's the place you go if you want to hear language and you want to hear language worth remembering. Exactly. Because the film is about so much about the visual. And that's when plays, you know, great plays transferred to film so often fall down because they have to create a visual that lives up to that language. And frequently, they cannot lean on the language in quite the same way that you can on the stage, where the, the language just rings and sings to you. It's very hard to make language ring and sing on film in quite the same way if the visual isn't totally dovetailed and, and put together with it. And then getting an audience that's receptive to it. The movie-going audience and the theater-going audience there may be some percentage of overlap, but they're substantially different. I was just watching again, because uh, I love the hell out of it, the film adaptation of Glengarry Glenn Ross. And I think it's it's about as well done uh, a screen adaptation as you can do. And it was very well received critically. Did not perform well at the box office. Uh, I mean, you'd say there's a there's a bunch of reasons for that. Who wants to watch, you know, five really miserable human beings heap abuse on each other? But they do it so beautifully, uh, and and the the language is is terrific. Um, but I I just don't think there was a movie going audience in enough numbers for that to work. The the screen adaptation of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which Mike Nichols uh, directed. I also thought it was terrific. I, I don't know how it did, but that was the late 60s when it was considered fairly revolutionary, the, the language that was in the play, for that to be on the big screen. And two of the biggest stars of the day. Huge, huge. Um, but it was, um, if you were doing that today, where you do have a less adventuresome audi- movie-going audience, I really don't know how well it would do. Uh, I think it's an open question. As someone who loves film and theater, here's one thing I think is interesting. I think the medium does train us. So 
when I see a film, I notice that as much as I love language, I am less attuned to the language because the experience is presented to me visually. And I am looking for that visual element. That's how my brain is receiving it. When we go to the theater, we are trained to to listen to the language because the the image is not going to change every five seconds the way it does on film. What the, it may not change at all for three it may hours. Not change at all for the entire time. It's basically this. Usually, one set. The actors you register them visually, and they're going to move around and may change costumes. But what's changing is the language. So you're consciously or unconsciously, your brain is being told listen to the words, listen to the words, listen to the words, and that's why I think we do remember the language from the great plays differently. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, uh, notwithstanding. We we do remember the words of stage plays differently than we do film. There are films with rich language. However, I mean, I'm thinking of some of uh, Patty Chayefsky's screenplays. And again, we're talking about a writer who comes from theater. And two movies that come to mind that he wrote, one is uh, The Hospital and the other one is Network. The language is beautiful. However... At the same time, each of those things moves along like an express train. The scenes are still short. The language in those scenes and the character uh, dynamics in those scenes are very, very rich. You're tempted to use the word theatrical. Yet at the same time, he knows he's writing for a movie. And then especially with um, Network, which Sidney Lumet directed, Lumet did find those visuals that complement even the rich dialogue. And one of the best scenes in network is the boardroom scene between Ned Beatty and uh, Peter Finch. And it's this, this wonderful monologue. Mm-hmm. Yet if you watch it closely, there's a lot going on visually that Lumet worked out with his cinematographer, which is a guy named Owen Roisman. There is a visual compliment on the other hand, it's this one scene. It's five minutes long, which in film, it stands out. It's kind of like a set piece because for film, that's a long scene. On the stage, it's okay. Now you speak. I've noticed, too, that one thing that film and theater do have in common is what my my dr- drama literature teacher in college called the witty banter which has been going on for centuries, you know, it's usually the, the two love interests, but it can be two subsidiary characters. Uh, the witty banter back and forth in a rapid, rapid fire succession. That seems to translate fair. I think it's what audiences look for frequently in romantic comedies, that, that banter between the two leads and that even if they don't remember the language from film and the way they might remember it on stage, it seems to, be something audiences enjoy in both media. They do enjoy it. I think the standard of what constitutes witty banter <laughs> may have changed. <laughs> yes, especially for film. I think over the last 20, 30 years, and and it's because the big dollar dynamic, the big dollar audience slice is 15 to 24, that age bracket. That's the big money. So Iron Man may have some witticisms, um, but it's it's not exactly Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn in, in bringing up baby. Again, the scenes will be still be short. 
witty banter in the movies is a couple of lines and then you're on into the next scene. And even in uh, non-romantic comedies, you know, I, I for one of my writing classes, I just ran uh, What's Up, Doc? And I'm always impressed and happy to see that the movie still plays, even for a young audience today. It's actually very intricately constructed, and it takes its time getting all its ducks in a row before it takes off. I cannot think of a big successful movie comedy over the last 20, 30 years that works like that. If you look at something like uh, The Hangover, all right, it's funny, but the the, the quote-unquote bitter, uh, witty banter is really guys going, what the F? <laughs> you know, which is funny the first 20, 30 times, but um, especially by the time you get into the second and third sequel, I'm not really sure this is all that witty. Mm. You, you don't have to be clever in movies to be funny. You do have to be rather clever and sharp on stage to be funny because you have to sustain it on stage. And you can't force a laugh by somebody opening a door and a lion jumps into their hotel room. It goes back to what I said earlier. All you have is people on stage talking to each other and trying to sustain that. When I write for the stage, I always compare it to trying to drive a stick shift. It's a lot harder and requires a lot more of me to get to the same place I could get driving an automatic, which is what I consider driving, uh, writing a screenplay to be. The construction is tougher. Making the characters work is tougher. Getting dialogue that engages for 20, 30 minutes at a time is tougher. Uh, that, to me, that's heavy lifting. And I haven't done a lot of it. I've done, what, maybe four or five if that stage works, plus a couple of one acts, the more of it I've done, the more respectful and appreciative I've become of the medium. When I was in my 20s or when I was in college, I was rather dismissive of theater. Old medium, dead medium, can't do what the movies can do. And having, now that I'm older and, and done more, um, it's more like, yeah, it's an old medium and film still can't do what stage does. TV can't do what stage does. I don't care how big your screen is at home. It's not a stage. It's not even a movie theater. So how do you think you sell that, or we sell that, or anybody sells that to a younger audience, to the to the 20-year-old Bill Macy? <clears throat> or is it just something you have to age into? It's a hard sell because you got to get them in the house first. And I think if you if you wait till they're 20... You're fighting an uphill battle. You got to get them younger. You got to get them accustomed to it. We used to take my daughters when they were really small to to stage shows, and they're used to that rhythm. They understand that rhythm. They understand what makes it work. I remember taking my my oldest. I can't remember how old she was. I don't even think she was ten yet. And uh, we took them to see Irma. Took her to see Irma Vep which she thought was hysterical. I mean, here's this little bitty kid, and she came out of there. I still remember her saying, as we're walking out, that's the best play I've seen in my whole stinking life. <laughs> but getting them used to it that, that early, uh, I think, is, is key. If you wait till they're 20, especially now, 
because the kid growing up now is so saturated in electronic media, more so than I was. I mean, look, when, when I was 20, we had, what, three broadcast networks. That's it. No cable, no home video, no social media, no TikToks, nothing. And the rhythm in movies at that time, in the late 60s and 70s, there was um, actually an effort by a lot of young filmmakers to try to ape the rhythm of a good novel. So the pace, and they were also very much influenced by European cinema, even at the same time that they were playing in typically American genres. So you take the gangster movie and you give it this look and the grace of a really good novel and you come up with The Godfather, which as a novel was rather schlocky. That intent isn't really there. You see it on the indie circuit, on the small budget movies. But the, the mainstream, it's hyperactive. It's much more visceral than it used to be. Uh, it's hard to imagine some of the movies that we saw. Perfect example. All the President's Men was one of the top earning movies of the 1970s. Not just its year, but of its decade. And what is it? It's two guys going around town asking people questions. The big climax is them sitting at their typewriters. The contemporary equivalent of that was, since a few years ago, Spotlight. Small indie film. It was a commercial. It was a financial success as an indie film, but I mean, it's not even like the top fifty for the year. The, that audience sensibility in the mainstream really isn't there, and to cultivate it, as you said, to sell it, you got to get them young and get them used to it, to where they understand that this is not a replacement for film or TV. It's something else. It's another. It's another offering on the buffet. <laughs> so interesting. Uh, that would be a whole different uh, podcast where we might talk about how do we sell parents on the idea that this is going to benefit their kids. But maybe that's a subject for another day. Well, Bill, do you want to talk about the journey of the advocate at all? Uh, <laughs> so Bill has written uh, a stage play called The Advocate or the, the angel, Def angel one time it was called The Angel Descendant. It has had many lives as a stage play. It has had uh, a life as a novel. And I suspect somewhere in Bill's drawer, there's even a screenplay. Do you, do you want to talk at all about that material, Bill, and uh, its different incarnations? That's the one that got me into theater. Uh, and it was purely an accident. I was at a college. I had this novel manuscript. It was in my early 20s. I, you know, uh, there, there was no entry for me into film, state, whatever. I'm stuck. And I was dating a woman who was working for a theater company in Montclair. That was the old uh, whole theater. And she said, you know, they have a play, a new play reading process where people have never written a play before. You can submit an original play. And even though I wasn't interested in theater, I was interested in trying to get something done. And she said, you know, you have a trial scene in that novel. I think you could adapt that for the stage. So I did that, not very well, but I did that. I submitted it. And then their play reading cycle, I think after 13 months, two people had read it. 
because apparently it was not a priority of them. But now I had this play. And even though I still wasn't particularly interested in theater, uh, I, I, I never liked to waste anything. Jump ahead another couple of years. By happenstance, I have a fr- another friend who's involved in theater. And he says, I showed this to a director friend of mine in New York um, who did a lot of black box stuff. He says he wants to put up a reading in his living room just to see how it sounds. And that was the first time I actually got to hear it. And hearing it, even though it was a tremendously flawed piece, that's when I started to enjoy theater that I could see, ooh, you know, there's really something, there's a buzz to doing this. Jump ahead another year or so. Uh, I'm working at HBO and I have a woman working for me who was involved with an outfit in New York called the Director's Company. She put it up for a reading. And that's when I got introduced to the practicalities. She puts up this reading and afterwards, the first line out of her mouth are, you know, you got 11 characters in this. Nobody's ever going to put this up. (laughs) Now, all the time that this is going on, the novel... By this time, I have an agent. The novel goes out, gets rejected, comes back. I start rewriting the novel, goes out for another round of submissions, gets rejected. I rewrite it. Each work took on a life of its own. So at a certain point, the play is no longer an adaptation of a novel. The play is telling what's basically the same story, but its own way. It becomes its own thing. So I'm no longer referencing the novel. Because I was making a rookie's mistake. I'm trying to salvage the novel by trying to see how much of it I could shoehorn onto the stage. The breakthrough for me was forget about the novel. Act like the novel doesn't exist. How do you do this for the stage? This is a process we're talking about over years. It took me 20 some odd years to get that damn novel published. uh, And longer to get the play in the shape it's in now where I'm, I'm finally content. And this is my advice to young wannabe playwrights. It's not a replacement for you doing what you want to do. Appreciate it and respect it for what it is, that it has its own values, that it can do things no other medium can do. You're not trying to cheat a movie or a novel onto the stage. You're writing a play. Love theater for what theater can do. I do, and I'm not a theater guy. So I I hear that as good advice. I certainly see in the Young Playwrights competitions, you can see who's writing for the stage and who's who's got a movie in their head. They're trying to wrestle into a stage play. But how do you define that for a young playwright? So because so you don't want to just stress limitations, you want to stress the positive. So it's not about saying, look, 11 characters is too hard to cast, because certainly you can find 11 willing actors, usually, especially if you are a high school student who's casting uh, among your drama club. So what's the positive there? The positive there is we're not going to meet 11 different characters in a 10-minute short play, but we're going to explore two or three characters a little more intimately a little more deeply? Like how do you refocus them away from, well, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, into, but this is what you can do? I think the same way that I learned is by exposing them to it early. There's a lot of lovely 
short plays out there. Um, and they're not all written by, you know, famous playwrights. There's a lot of great stuff out there. And, and typically a, the really good one act, it's two or three actors, one setting, and it plays, it plays beautifully. And it's a matter of what's the word enculturation, acclimatization, you expose them to it and they get to see what it does. And what you want to create is a certain kind of envy where the young playwright says, Ooh, I, I want to do that. I want to be able to do that. Now, I think once you introduce that to them, you can start talking about limitations because at some point you have to learn the, the, the discipline of the craft. And I don't care what medium you write in. I mean, I teach screenwriting, I teach fiction writing, uh, and the, element of craft of skill gets undersold and that's where a lot of young writers get in trouble yes your inspiration comes from your heart and your gut that's your first draft after that your intellect has to kick in and this is where you start making tactical and strategic decisions about your work it's no longer simply about making you feel good it's recognizing that the audience is not you. They don't have your frame of reference. They don't have your connection to the material that you do. So how does somebody who's alien to that material, how do you create in them the kind of feeling that you feel about the material? And that's where you start making some pretty cold, hard decisions about it. So first you cultivate the love of the medium, and then you escalate to all right, now here's how it actually works. Here's what you have to work within. It's like painting. You can't paint past the edge of the canvas. Makes a lot of sense. Certainly, I think that what we talk a lot uh, in the Playwrights Workshop is that you do have to go back and forth between the left and right brains successfully many, yeah. many times. Because some writers, they will write from their heart and their gut. And then they leave to go to the other side of the brain and they can never get back to the original inspiration. Because I think you, you know, with all of your tactical decisions, you have to be able to reconnect at some point with the heart and the gut again to make sure that your tactical decisions haven't lost the original inspiration is what I've agreed. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's because I've been doing this a while now. I mean, I, I, my first screenwriting contract, professional contract, it was 1978. So I'm at this a while. Uh, and I did my first stage work was in the mid nineties. And my first book was published in 2000. So, oh God, I'm starting to remind myself how freaking old I am. The two lobes there work as a team for me. It's, it's not a separation. It's not even going back and forth. I mean, now they, they kind of, um, like a, a really good team sport, they kind of move easily between them. The one is going, you know, that's really good, but you know, it's not going to play. All right. Well, what if I try this? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That'll play. So you have this ping pong going on in there constantly to, for me, it's no longer even conscious, mm -hmm. but I've been, this is going to sound self aggrandizing, self-trained. My, <laughs> and I even hate using the word career without putting quotes around it, has, has been mostly self-taught. When I was an undergrad, I had one course in screenwriting, one course in prose. 
That's it. That's all the quote unquote formal training I had. And I was lucky enough to start getting work where I was being quote unquote taught by development people, by directors, by people who were actually in the business. So a lot of it was trial and error. A lot of it was people who had already been down this road long before me telling me, here's why that's not going to work. Same thing happened in play. I mean, you you were a big teacher for me. I don't know if you were aware of it. But when I started getting involved with a playwright circle that you were involved in, that was where I really started learning a lot about both the practicalities and the aesthetics of theater. And again, it was trial and error. It was on-the-job training, really. Happened when I started getting published, working with an editor, start getting a feel for, okay, I, I start seeing what you mean by structure. I start what you mean by that even a novel kind of has sort of acts. I get it. I get it. It's not the way I would advise people to learn because it tends to be a bit painful and involve an awful lot of rejection, often without explanation as to why you're getting rejected. Uh, but my end point is that now I am at a point where, where, as I said, the two lobes, hey, partner, let's do it together. <laughs> Booyah. I guess going back and forth, like everything else, practice helps. It does. All right. Well, Bill, I want to thank you for being with us today. It's uh, As always, you are fascinating to listen to. Are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave us with? <laughs> if you're young and you're thinking about doing this, I'd really consider becoming an accountant first. But it's, 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 there's a lot of bumps involved in this. Uh, but if you do pursue it, uh, when you do even one piece that works, there's a sense of gratification that... Uh, is really hard to top. I think those those are wise words to wind up with. Thank you, Bill Bain. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Theatre Project Thinks About. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving a comment on our Facebook page. Our audio engineer was Gary Glore, and our theme music was by Gail Liu and Damien DeSandes. Visit thetheaterproject.org to sign up for our mailing list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. And there are a bunch for this one. That's all for this episode. We'll see you next time.